It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me, or you or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. In my view, SR1 is the biggest power grab in the history of the country. It mandates ballot harvesting, no voter ID. It does away with the states being able to redistrict when you have population shifts. Uh, it, it's just a bad idea, and it's a problem that most Republicans are not going to sign up. They're trying to fix a problem most Republicans have a different view of. All right, that was Lindsey Graham last week, and the reason I played that clip this morning is because we have talked, have we not, repeatedly about For the People Act, uh, which was so dubbed by Nancy Pelosi in the House when they passed it as H.R. 1. It is a power-grabbing bill, a dangerous bill, probably the most dangerous bill our Congress is contemplating, and that is the one that will codify so many of the election processes uh, that happened in 2020 that caused uh, the chaos that we're suffering right now from mail-in ballots to uh, ignoring election law to uh, the way they count ballots to voter ID to all of it. It is just a one-stop shop nightmare bill that has been passed in the House. And the reason I'm mentioning it today is because uh, Chuck Schumer has filed cloture on this bill. Uh, they will be voting this week in the Senate on SR1. And if it should pass, of course, uh, President Biden will certainly sign. It would be a, a, a bill made in heaven for the Democrats, and he will certainly sign it. Now, Joe Manchin has been mentioned repeatedly as, you know, the famous, you know, the knight in shining armor who's going to save our Republicans. And, well, you know, I honestly don't like to make this a party issue, but I have to when we discuss it in terms of legislation. It will be a nightmare for Republicans, but the real point is it will be a nightmare for America because it will take away uh, so many of the voting um, uh, care, the, the care that our laws have made through years, plus the state's rights to control their elections. That's always been the case. And as chaotic as it seems at time, times, local control is always better than having the federal government control our elections, which is what they want to do. So Joe Manchin, uh, in I think it was last Wednesday night, introduced a, a counter. Uh, sort of an addition, another version of the For the People Act. And uh, uh, Senator McConnell, who's, uh, you know, I, I have to always say, because you say, why are you citing him? You don't like him. I don't. Uh, he is good on some things, and he's good on something in the Senate that will threaten his power and the power of his party. Uh, so he's spot on on this. He says that uh, Manchin's election reform proposal is still rotten to the core. We will talk more about that with someone in Washington, not today, but but I want you to know today that this is happening. And so how do you respond to this? Well, I think one of the ways uh, I, in many ways, have uh, probably given up on D.C. I shouldn't say that publicly, but I, I think it's just, it, it, I think D.C. has rotten to the core, to coin a phrase from Senator McConnell. Uh, it's so many bad things have happened, but uh, we need to pray and pray and pray. But also, this is a day 
uh, and this week is a time when the filibuster will be challenged in a hundred different ways. Uh, they are also going to try to pass the Equality Act this week, which is the nightmare bill uh, for those that are uh, believe that God has designed men and wom- women uh, in purpose, and that there are roles that they play that gender is not fluid, that uh, children should not be assigned names that are opposite of their born identity. And and uh, there are many, many other things that the Equality Act does, but all hell is going to break loose this week in Washington. You probably will hardly hear about it uh, because uh, it isn't really that important to the press, but it's important to the American people. And so you need to call your senators and tell them um, no on SR1, no, 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 no on the Equality Act, just do those two things. And that's probably... Uh, as simple as I know how to make it, you can be uh, s- firm uh, and kind at the same time. And that's always my recommendation. All right, well, I talked to you last week about two events that were happening, one in Virginia that happened over the weekend uh, called the Virginia Freedom Festival and uh, had lots of speakers and lots of people. Uh, Stand Up Virginia was one of the sponsors and a lot of people who are involved in the fight against critical race theory in public schools were involved and just lots of people. But I don't know. I would love to hear. If you went, I would love to hear what you saw. Okay, so I'm going to open the phone lines, 888-589-8840. Did any of you go to the Virginia Freedom Festival on Saturday? And if you did, tell us what happened and what you saw and what you think you accomplished. Just just your story of what happened on Saturday. It's 888-589. See, that's when my Southern Illinois comes out, Saturday. Oh, boy, Saturday is when it was it happened. And so uh, if you were there, we'd love to hear your story. It's 888-589-8840. I think you guys have to clear the phone lines there uh, in order to get some calls. The second thing is uh, in Michigan on Thursday, uh, we there was a rally at the Capitol, a prayer rally, and I would love to hear if any of you went to that. Uh, it would be great to hear from you and what happened at that, too. It's 888-589-8840. So um, we, we're going to open the phone lines. If you call, we're going to go right to you and talk to you. Uh, this last week, of course, was this new holiday that's new to a lot of us, Juneteenth. It's very new to me. Uh, but um, there are several ways of looking at this. It's a, it's a celebration of the end of slavery. I'm not sure who could be against that. Uh, I would have to say I'm certainly not against that. I remember these great stories of when Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves through the Emancipation Proclamation and how much joy there was in the Capitol in D.C. And uh, how how much joy there was among the slaves around there and how they loved, you know, President Lincoln because of that. And that's when uh, historically American black uh, citizens became Republicans, and they were for, for generations up until the 60s. So um, that's not a thing to celebrate, but the freedom from slavery is the thing to celebrate. And so uh, Charles Payne weighed in on this. Charles of Fox weighed in on, on uh, Fox News yesterday, and I thought his remarks were just poignant. Uh, he's a, If you don't know, Charles is a black. He's a, a expert in finances. I love, his, I, love, I love his manner, and I love what he has to say. But he talked about Juneteenth, and I want you to hear what he said. Let's listen. Clip two. Now, when I think of Juneteenth, I can see the faces of those enslaved people weeping tears of joy. You know, I really doubt they spent a lot of time lamenting on how long it took to learn of the news or even the plight of their bondage. I believe that they moved very quickly to embrace their new lives. And I think we today should take their cue. When I think of Juneteenth, I also think of my mother. Born and raised in Uniontown, Alabama, she saw and lived through things that no longer happened in America. 
She was never bitter, and she hit the pain of her life the best she could, although she would cry on Sundays while she was listening to Mahalia Jackson or other gospel greats. She raised us to seize the future and to not be changed to the past, not to allow the bondage of yesteryear to stall our own potential, our own opportunities. When I think of Juneteenth, I think of freedom. I think of America moving forward. I think of the greatness of people that endured the harshest of human treatment to see their children enjoy those certain inalienable rights endowed by their creator. Juneteenth is a good thing for all Americans, so let's all go out and seize the day. Yes, I agree with him. Like I said, it's new to me, but I, you know, um, in the past, one of the things I have really enjoyed during a, a Black History Month, February, which I haven't done since I've been on the air here, just because there's so much news and I have so little time to cover everything. Uh, but there are some great interviews with former slaves. I think it was put together by PBS a number of years ago. It's fascinating to hear their stories. I've spent a lot of time reading about what happened uh, after you know the Civil War, how blacks became prosperous, became business owners. I did one of the my favorite interviews was with a, a Clifton. I can't think of his last name, but he wrote a book called When We Were Colored. And he talked about um, how strong families and values were in the 50s and black families. Just a great book. Uh, the history of what's happened to American blacks is fascinating. And as Charles says, it's like looking forward, not looking backward. What a thing to rejoice. And we should all be rejoicing. And now, uh, from my perspective, uh, up until the poison of critical race theory and uh, the poison of the, well, the Obama started it and Eric Holder, uh, just stoking up race. I heard, did you hear, any of you see that um, video of that boy who was about 14 testifying before a uh, um, uh, school board about how critical race theory had affected him? And one of the things he said was, you know, before I started being taught critical race theory, when I met someone, I just met them and we talked. And now the first thing I think of when I meet someone is their race. It's the first thing I see. And he said it shouldn't be that way. And it is true that when people start stoking up uh, the pains of the past, the hurts of the past, whether it's uh, it can be race, it could also be divorce, it could be mistreatment of any kind, uh, the, the goal of uh, uh, people, uh, certainly of Christians, is to heal and get beyond that. It's forgiveness, you know, hardness of heart and anger and wallowing in your hurt leads to bitterness and anger and a lack of productivity. And so that's what Charles is talking about. All right. So there was another black gentleman who got up to testify. I, I think this was, may have been in Virginia. Uh, and uh, he was addressing the, uh, the, the board of education or the, the school board. And uh, this is what he had to say. You may have seen this. It came out last week, but we didn't have a chance to play it. Here he is talking to the school board about critical race theory. Let's listen. When you talk about critical race theory, which is pretty much going to be teaching kids how to hate each other, how to dislike each other, that's pretty much what it's going to, what it's going to all come down to. You're going to deliberately teach kids? This white kid right here got it better than you because he white? You're going to purposely tell a white kid, oh, the black people are all down and suppressed? How do I have two medical degrees if I'm sitting here oppressed? How do I get, first of all, because only got five minutes now, not five minutes. Two medical degrees. No mom, no dad in the house. Worked my way through college. Sat there and hustled my butt off to get through college. You gonna tell me somebody that looked like all y'all white folks kept me from doing that? Are you serious? 
Not one white person ever came to me and said, well, son, you're never going to be able to get nowhere because you know the black people. But guess what? What's sickening about this whole thing is what y'all doing right now is already something I do in my community right now to speak out against stuff because black folks are getting told by other black folks, oh, you know you ain't going to be able to do nothing out there in the world because them white folks ain't going to let you get nowhere. Oh, you know you're not going to be able to do it here because you know, white, the, the white man, the white man going to keep you down. Well, how did I get where I am right now if some white man kept me down? How am I now directing over folks that look just like you guys in this room right now? How? What, what, what kept me down? What oppressed me? I work for myself from off the streets to where I am right now. You going to sit here and tell me this lie of critical race theory? Of this, this, this the reason why black folks can't get ahead because of white folks? Are you kidding me? This is what we come to now. I can't believe we're even talking about this right now. The last thing I'm going to say right here is something that's crazy. Martin Luther King said he wanted his kids to grow up in a world where they are judged by the contents of their what? Character. Their character, not their skin. If they let this stuff go on right now, it is absolutely doing the complete reverse of what he's doing. So when February comes, don't talk about Martin Luther King. When February comes, don't talk about black history. Mother dog will sit there and just pee, pee on his grave with this nonsense. That's exactly what's about to happen. Lastly, we are talking about our kids. We are talking about our children. What's so sickening about me, I love the Discovery Channel. You will see that on the Discovery Channel, animals will put their lives on the line to protect their children from yeah. danger. All right. He has more to say after that. You know, and you, you can see, you can hear the emotion in his voice. I don't think that, see, all right, let me make a, this. I know I'll be accused of being a racist because I don't, I'll always be accused of being that. I want my uh, white audience, uh, and there are many black people listening, but I want my white listeners to understand, if they don't already, that black Americans are a huge spectrum of individuals that God created individually. They don't feel collectively about something. And if you can only imagine the insult and frustration to those who have worked so hard, they are uh, our brothers and sisters in this country. We share the same soil. Our kids go to school together. We have learned to live together. If you can imagine the insult to them to hear the nonsense, as you're hearing him express of critical race theory, let's somehow... Uh, they've been, uh, you know, kept down by the white men. It's insulting to them. Ask, you know, um, Clarence Thomas how he. Fe- I haven't asked Clarence Thomas about this, but I wonder how he feels about this when he's worked so hard and achieved so much and been such a, a strong and passionate voice for conservatism in this country with, you know, all the intellect that anyone on the court has. How insulting to have these conversations and constantly point to the differences in color. Uh, haven't we gotten past that? And uh, for those of you who don't have black friends, you have to know that, <laughs> you just have to know <laughs> that a lot of American blacks are upset about this too. And to hear their voices is just like, it's life-giving, isn't it? So I thank that gentleman who stood up, and I wanted you to hear it. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Perfect little hands and perfect little feet. Can you hear that? That's her little heart beating. I had no idea I had a little baby girl in there. With little fingers and little toes. I didn't know at all she was so real. They told me she wasn't a baby and should be aborted. Now, I could never. This ultrasound gives you a glimpse of God's perfect design and the good work He has begun with you. You both have intrinsic worth and value and are loved beyond measure. Life-changing transformation happens in the communities that need us most. That's exactly why ICU Mobile chooses to go. Four of five women in our mobile units see their ultrasound and choose life. Visit us now at icumobile.org to make a life-saving contribution. 
or text LIVES to 45777. That's L-I-V-E-S to 45777. This is Pause to Pray, a chance to stop down from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today we pray for Vice President Kamala Harris. As Vice President, she serves at the pleasure of the President is first in the presidential line of succession and is also president of the United States Senate. Matthew 23:11 reminds us of the importance of serving others. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Right now with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask for your guidance for Vice President Kamala Harris as she serves the president and our country. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Pause to Pray is a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team, a nonprofit, nonpartisan ministry dedicated to encouraging prayer for our nation's leaders. To learn more, go to pausetopray.org. Hello Americans, I'm Todd Starnes with news and commentary next. Are you looking for a university that provides a quality Christian education with excellent academic and athletic programs? Well, I want to invite you to visit Liberty University, where they offer multiple visiting opportunities to fit your schedule. Plan a visit to their Central Virginia campus and stay for an afternoon, a day, or an entire weekend. You can also take a virtual tour from the comfort of your own home. Plan your visit today by texting "Go Visit" to the number four nine five nine six. Again, that's "Go Visit" to the number four nine five nine six. Homeschool numbers are skyrocketing across the nation, in part because of the China virus, but mostly because parents have grown frustrated with public schools indoctrinating instead of educating. That's a big problem for Yale professor Philip Grosky. He says that Christian homeschooling is a major vector of white Christian nationalism. The other day, Professor Grosky posted a photo of a homeschool advertisement. He was apparently triggered that students were being taught to love America, that patriotism was part of the curriculum. He also shared a story from Christianity Today, calling for parents to root out what he called the nationalist weed in Christian education. Christianity Today is a far left religious magazine. It's my opinion the country is a lot better off with homeschool kids raised to believe the United States is one nation under God. Instead of public school kids raised to believe America is a bastion of racism and white supremacy, I'm Todd Starnes. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook, or email Sandy at sandy at afr dot net. That's Sandy at afr dot net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the things we know is we need a commission. And they're opposing a commission to find out who all was involved. Where did the money come from to send busloads of people in? Who supported them in all of this? Where was the organizing taking place? I'm told there was organizing taking place right in the Trump campaign. And so if they really are concerned about why our capital was invaded and why there was an insurrection, they would support a commission、uh, to find out. But they don't want to know because too many of them side with them and support what they have done, and they're not going to call them to task for it. It is outrageous what happened to us that the capital of the United States was invaded by domestic terrorists, and they don't want to live up to it and. And admit what took place. They call themselves patriots, but that speech that you heard me give on the floor, I challenged their patriotism, and I told them、uh, that they were not really patriots. 
Congresswoman from California, and let me just to keep up with the theme of a few minutes ago. Maxine Waters is not um, uh, does not say those things and act the way she does because she's black. She does it because she's wicked, and so I just want to make that clear. And I think, see, this is the thing we get into caricatures and think people assume. And I'm just telling you, I'm confronting that, saying to you that wickedness. And certainly confusion of the mind has does not know a race. And Maxine's wicked. She's just wicked. She's a wicked leftist, and she's starting, trying to stir up uh, a trouble. She's Now she's saying it's, uh, it was the Trump campaign who organized the January 6th attacks. That's what she's saying. Uh, I want to talk about January 6th again because I'm learning more and more. I was reading an article in CNN. There are um, – if you are watching other networks, you are certainly seeing there's plenty of damning clips – against what look like Trump supporters doing whatever it is they're doing. Uh, and CNN uh, released one just, I'll tell you about it, it was a, a video of Scott Fairlam, who was a gym owner from New Jersey. Uh, uh, it's just a few seconds, but he's leaning into the face of, poli- of a police officer, taunting him, and then he shouts at him and he pushes and then punches the officer. So they play that, but then they, they, they say this, I think this is interesting, Because it confirms what I've been telling you. And this is, again, from CNN. More than a dozen news outlets led by CNN have spent months seeking access to videos used in court against Capitol riot defendants. Much of the police body cam camera footage and surveillance tapes that are now being used in court still haven't been seen publicly. The Justice Department has not released any many of the tapes, and court proceedings have been conducted virtually during the pandemic. Media outlets have struggled to even view these clips. And yet we know that they speak with great authority about what they're seeing at the Capitol, don't they? They they, they see these little tiny clips, and the one of Scott Fairlam is very short, too. Wish I could see here, but it's it's just, it's, uh, oh, five or six seconds. So, you know, uh, they're drawing their conclusions from the uh, video that is being released, and that's just not adequate. It's just not adequate. I want to go back to this whole notion that somehow the FBI may have been involved in uh, encouraging, infiltrating various groups like um, Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, and I forgot what the other ones, Proud Boys maybe, uh, that they spent out, we're learning more and more about how they used enormous resources. They've been bragging about it publicly, how many resources they've thrown into this. But what I didn't realize until I've been doing more reading, and some of that is in that Revolver article that we posted on our Facebook page uh, just last Thursday, by the way, let's repost it, Adam, because uh, it's unindicted co-conspirators in the January 6th case uh, raised disturbing questions of federal foreknowledge. It is an amazing article. It's very long, uh, but uh, I recommend it, and I'm going to talk about it just a little bit more this morning. Um, so the idea that the Revolver introduced and, and that Tucker Carlson uh, did interviews with Revolver, and there are other people speaking up about this, and now I want to get to that, is that the FBI's pattern during, uh, after 9-11, uh, they would, in, because of the law changes or sort of loosening of some of the laws of barriers, what FBI could and could not do, uh, they would go and infiltrate Islamic groups and then charge them with conspiracies uh, and the allegation, I guess more than an allegation because lots of people are notating it and pointing to specific instances, is that the FBI has then morphed that into uh, going inside conservative, otherwise conservative groups, infiltrating them, 
Uh, the the danger here is what they are being the FBI is being accused of now, and maybe more than just the FBI, but that's the, what what we know about is that now they have moved into the territory of organizing these events and leading them. Uh, I mentioned to you last week. Now, look, this is all in discussion to be determined, but there are indications that that may exactly be what happened. There are 20 unindicted co-conspirators in the January 6th incident. Of course, they're unnamed. They're not indicted. And uh, as I understand it, it's much of their testimony uh, that is causing so many others to be indicted and imprisoned that the allegation is that the FBI actually may have been in leadership, taken leadership at some of these organizations and helped form the plots. I know that sounds crazy, but um, that's what. And then, all right. So just hang with me because I'm going to make the point in several different ways. Glenn Greenwald is the furthest thing from a conservative. He's actually, I believe, he's a gay reporter who has been really uh, very, very much an enemy to conservatives for a long time. But he's actually writing about this and speaking about it. Tucker's interviewed him several times lately, and um, he talked about. Uh, he responded to the backlash on the notion that the FBI might have actually incited some of this and led some of this, that there's a lot of murky territory here. So Glenn was on with Tucker last week again, and I want you to hear their exchange. This is clip one. During the Trump years, the CIA and the FBI became overwhelmingly popular among American liberals. They worshipped the FBI and the CIA because they viewed it as the bulwark against Trump. So if you're serving a liberal audience, the last thing you know your audience wants to hear, and their audience is disappearing, so they're petrified of them, is anything that is questioning of or critical of the FBI, on top of which all these news outlets are filled on their payroll with former operatives of the FBI and the CIA. So, for example, when CNN wanted to cover this story, who did they invite on? They said, let's get the truth, Chris Cuomo said. Here's my colleague, the former deputy director of the FBI. Who, what journalist talks to the FBI to get the truth about the FBI when the question is, is the FBI being truthful or is their actions less than scrupulous? But these outlets are completely constructed to serve this worshipful view of the FBI and the CIA that everything that they say should never be questioned. That's what drove Russiagate for five years. So many of the false conspiracy theories that these outlets spread and they're doing it again. If you go and Google, and I hope your viewers do, Operation Mockingbird, what you will find is that during the Cold War, these agencies used to plot about how to clandestinely manipulate the news media to disseminate propaganda to the American population. They used to try and do it secretly. They don't even do it secretly anymore. They don't need Operation Mockingbird. They literally put John Brennan, who works for NBC, and James Clapper, who works for CNN, and tons of FBI agents right on the payroll of these news organizations. They now shape the news openly to manipulate and deceive the American population. So if you're an American wondering what foreknowledge and involvement did the FBI have in January 6th? If you go and listen to those networks, you're going to get lies because the only people they're asking are people who are serving those agencies and acting to disseminate disinformation. That's what those outlets are. All right, so that's Glenn Greenwald. Again, furthest thing from a conservative, uh, but he's really uh, been reporting on January 6th, and he's saying, of course, that the Operation Mockingbird he's re- referring to is during the Cold War. It's a, the, the government using the American press to um, sort of manipulate events 
for the purpose, of course, of bringing down communism. But now these, these methods are being employed to bring down conservatives. That's basically what he's saying. And, um, you know, uh, as you all know, my, my husband, um, Bruce, was a former FBI agent. We talked about this a bit. Uh, hopefully he can join me and we can talk about it on the air together. But it's always been the case, historically at least, that the FBI has infiltrated groups, like it's, if it's the mafia or if it's, you know, Islamist groups. Uh, that's how they get their information. It was the weather underground during the, the 70s and 80s. But what's different is they have never been gone undercover for the purpose of inciting law-breaking activities and leading them and helping to plan and uh, in some cases taking positions of leadership in these organizations uh, in order to plan nefarious plots and then participating in those illegal activities. That's what they have not done, and that seems to be what's changed. I want to just, before I go back to illustrating that a little bit more, I want to go to Angelo Cotavia, who wrote an article in American Greatness. Angelo has joined us before, but it's been a long time. He wrote an interesting article called Fighting the Extremism Fight. And he says, um, this is from his own experience. He's a long-term expert in uh, American intelligence and um, law enforcement. Ever since 2009 or so, when serious opposition to government policy developed, especially but not exclusively among conservative-minded Americans. The FBI has infiltrated domestic opposition groups with the same Patriot Act tools that it used against affiliates of al-Qaeda. That the FBI was unable to affect, never mind control, the massive Tea Party movement, smaller groups such as the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and even ad hoc minuscule ones are led and exist largely as creatures of the FBI. Now, I don't understand that. I can't ask him a follow-up question on that, but that's what he's saying. As with Islamic radicals, the FBI's anti-terrorism work nowadays consists almost exclusively, exclusively of leading persons in the groups that it influences into near crimes and then to prosecutions that it touts as triumphs. So um, that's, that's just a little portion of his article, Fighting the Extremism Fight, just to give you a little background on what's being alleged here. Now, Revolver, the Revolver, the Revolver article that I talked about, unindicted co-conspirators in the January 6th case, raises disturbing questions of federal foreknowledge. They use as a template what happened in Michigan. And I know that you all will recall that suddenly, out of nowhere, in the middle of Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, uh, issuing these draconian orders that were just strangling the freedoms of Michiganders while she was, you know, abusing her own authority and her own privileges. It's just a, a, amazing the things that she was able to do. Then suddenly, when she was about to be uh, taken down by voters, like through a recall effort, the story broke that there was a group of people that wanted to kidnap and kill her. Do you remember that? I'm sure you do. But we know a lot more about that now. Uh, and... Um, what Revolver is uh, suggesting is that that was a template. The FBI used that as a template. Now, this is all an allegation, but it makes a lot of sense uh, for various reasons, that, that the FBI used that particular happening in Michigan, the plot against Gretchen Whitmer, uh, to uh, kind of as an exercise to prepare for what they did for January 6th, uh, assuming that they did infiltrate and actually kind of agitate and actually lead 
a lot of what happened on January 6th, the bad stuff. Uh, so there was an article, a news story about the plot against Gretchen and Whitmer that I thought you would find interesting. And what you're going to hear on this is one of the main agents who infiltrated that little tiny group of people who allegedly were plotting. Uh, let's listen to it. This is a news story. Let's listen. Clip nine. A marks day three in the trial of three men accused of plotting to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer. This morning, the informant who was instrumental in foiling that plot took the stand to testify. Paul Ballar, Joseph Morrison, and Pete Musico are among the accused. The proceeding is audio only today to protect the informant. This informant says he first went to police when he learned the men, who identified themselves as the Wolverine Watchmen, were planning to kill police officers. The informant went on to describe several tactical trainings they went through over the course of a few months and their alleged intent to harm politicians and kill the governor. He also spoke about the group's involvement in several po protests, including the gridlock protest last April, where he says Pete Musico brought a grenade. He says there were also a part of a group that stormed the state capitol last spring. I didn't want to storm the capitol. They didn't indicate how he was going to do it. Uh, just take 200 guys, go up in there, take hostages, televise it, and execute the governor. And then hopefully the reinforcements will respond to responding officers. You wanted to televise the hearing is still ongoing, and we will continue to monitor it and bring you any new developments. All right, so, uh, okay, the bottom line is, uh, if there's a bottom line that I can make easy, three months before January 6th, this so-called plot against Gretchen Whitmer was revealed, okay? So going back to this Revolver article, let me... Let me read just exactly what they say. Indeed, what if we told you that scarcely three months before the January 6th Capitol siege, the FBI arrested 14 people for planning to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer and overthrow the state government, and that the alleged conspiracy to overthrow the state government involved storming of the state capitol? And what if we told you that of the 14 individuals who allegedly plotted the kidnapping and, quote, in quotes, and overthrow of the state government, at least five were undercover agents and federal informants. And if that's not enough, many of the individuals allegedly involved in this plot appear to belong to the Three Percenters, one of the very same militia groups now being blamed for storming January 6th. And as the cherry on the top, what if we told you that the director of the FBI field office, who oversaw the infiltration operation of the Michigan plot, was subsequently granted a highly coincidental promotion to the D.C. office, where he is now the lead agent for all the January 6th cases. Well, you have to think about that. And I'm not through with this because um, I want to flesh this out a little bit more. It's a lot of information to take in, and so uh, just stay with me as I make their point for them because I think it's a very interesting one and one that should be pondered uh, because we're um, a lot of people are in jail without bail, being held 23 of 24 hours a day. It is inhumane. It is wrong. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Spiritual warfare is a reality that none of us are going to be able to escape. The scripture reveals that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. We must be. But then the word of God says, but the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So guess what that means? Our munition supply is not limited to this natural sphere. We're not merely just engaged. We are engaged to win. I like that. Tune in to the Hamilton Quarter. Weekday afternoons at 5 Central on American Family Radio. This is Frank Effney, host of Secure Freedom Radio. It's your personal 
daily intelligence briefing about the challenges we face, how they're likely to affect you, and what we can do about them. You can find Secure Freedom Radio here every weeknight at 11 p.m. Eastern Time. Tune in to learn from our extraordinary experts what you need to know and will want to share. Join us for Secure Freedom Radio tonight at 11 Eastern, right here on AFR. For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. After initially filing a court document in the Hunter v. U.S. Department of Education case promising to vigorously defend religious freedom for more than 20 Christian colleges and universities, the very next day, the Biden Department of Justice amended the filing to downplay its willingness to fight for these schools' First Amendment freedoms. After being pressured by advocates for the LGBTQIA plus sociopolitical agenda, the Biden administration backpedaled in just one day. The Biden administration represents abject and overt hostility to religious freedom. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. Brian Fisher here with the Life and Liberty Minute. In a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court shortstopped the homosexual agenda by ruling that Christian foster care agencies cannot be compelled to place children in homosexual households. The court did this based on the First Amendment, which prohibits the federal government from interfering with the free exercise of religion. Children who are in foster care systems have already experienced severe trauma in their family of origin, and to protect them from further trauma, Christian agencies place them in optimal nurturing environments, and that's in the home of a man and a woman who are married to each other. Social scientists tell us that children raised in two-parent families do better in 77 out of 80 categories of mental health than children in same-sex households. This is a huge win for liberty, the Constitution, and vulnerable children. Catch Brian Fisher on Focal Point, weekday afternoons at 105 Central on American Family Radio. This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Fresh from his appalling summit with one tyrant, Russia's Vladimir Putin, President Biden's administration is signaling that another one is in the works with China's Xi Jinping. This comes in the immediate aftermath of Xi's latest attack on what little remains of freedom in Hong Kong. Police raided last week the offices of the former British colony's most popular pro-democracy paper, Apple Daily, seizing equipment and arresting five editors without bond. They seem doomed to join their courageous boss, Jimmy Lai, in the Chinese Communist Party's equivalent of the Soviet Gulag Archipelago. A bilateral summit will inevitably legitimate and reward Xi for such ruthless oppression at home and his increasingly aggressive behavior internationally. If we don't want to invite more of both, we should instead penalize him by decoupling the U.S. and Hong Kong dollars and boycotting next February's Olympic Genocide Games. This is Frank Gaffney. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Some of your fellow House Republicans are embracing a completely baseless conspiracy that the January 6th Capitol attack was actually a false flag operation carried out by the FBI. You're not only one of 10 Republicans who voted to impeach former President Trump over the insurrection, you spent 14 years working for the FBI. What's your response? Well, Dana, 
<clears throat> I will tell you, um, being a lifelong FBI agent, um, I will tell you, you know, starting in New York, ending in LA, and serving across the globe, when I got sworn into Congress in 2017, uh, I've been very, very taken back and dismayed at the um, disrespect that law enforcement is being given across the board, uh, both on the left and the right, quite frankly. Uh, on the left with local police uh, and on the right with the FBI, in fact, just this week, uh, the FBI got attacked twice, once from my Democrat colleagues uh, on the Intel Committee in which I sit, and then later uh, by my colleagues on the right who are trying to come up with this theory that somehow the FBI was behind January 6th which is incredibly irresponsible. And anybody that understands the criminal code, understands law enforcement data, knows uh, that a federal law enforcement agent cannot engage in a conspiracy. It wouldn't be a conspiracy in that case if they're acting within the scope of their employment. And if they're acting outside of the scope of their employment, they wouldn't be an unindicted co-conspirator. They would be an indicted co-conspirator. So the facts don't even follow. Uh, and I think the rhetoric is very dangerous and it's got to stop. Yeah, so that was a Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania. He's a Republican, and you heard him say former FBI agent. And, of course, what he says is true. If, a, if an FBI agent participated in a plot or actually helped to carry it out, that would be wrong. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be unindicted. He would be indicted. But uh, what he must not understand is that the wheels have come off the bus, and we know now that the FBI has uh, been corrupted through the leadership of James Comey and before that through— uh, Robert um, Mueller, it's just, it's amazing, uh, but he's in denial. A lot of agents are. My husband's not in denial, and a lot of his friends are not. They see it clearly. Uh, but let's, this doesn't mean that for a fact that the FBI led, uh, had a part in leading what happened on January 6th, but it certainly would make sense given the evidence. And I, I want to continue with this evidence. I want to just mention uh, to, to respond to Brian Fitzpatrick there, that a bipartisan Senate investigation of January 6th found that security and intelligence favor, failures at every level of government uh, led to the breach that led to the breach of the Capitol. Uh, all right. It's a 95-page report, product of uh, roughly five months by a joint uh, probe by the Senate Homeland Security and Rules Committee. It found significant breakdowns ranging from federal intelligence agencies failing to warn of potential for violence to a lack of planning and preparation by the U U.S. Capitol Police and law enforcement leadership. No overall operational or staff planning for that fateful day. Now, here's the deal. Uh, we know now that the FBI was deeply engaged before. They were spending all kinds of resources. They were infiltrating all of these groups, we know, by other uh, records that that's what they were doing. How could they now be reporting that there was all this plotting when they did nothing to stop it? Why didn't they do something to stop it? I think they arrested one proud boy at the airport uh, alleging crimes of him before he got to the January 6th rally. Uh, and, and other than that, honestly, I don't know of any other, uh, I don't know, of, I, I don't think I'm wrong about this. And then we also know that the National Guard was not called. They stopped it from being called. This just doesn't smell right. It doesn't pass the smell test. The FBI infiltrates because they're trying to stop things not because they're trying to create them or let them go on so that they can come back now and indict people for committing the crime. Uh, so so that's what part of the, what's being asked here. All right, so I want to go back to the whole idea of Michigan being a template for January 6th, and I want to go back to this um, Revolver article. So um, the Revolver article cites uh, a left-wing blog called Jacobin, 
And uh, I want to read you a little bit of what they they report here. Uh, and it talks about, uh, and this is what it says, since last week, and this is, of course, going back in time, the headlines have been lit up by a shocking story out of Michigan. The FBI had foiled a plot hatched by anti-lockdown protesters and right-wing militia members uh, to uh, kidnap Governor Whitmer, and they were calling her, um, I can't read what they said. According to a federal affidavit and court testimony, the plot involves surveilling Whitmer's vacation home in western Michigan and the surrounding area, procuring explosives and tactical gear to fight off police, taking part in armed training exercises, and even possibly blowing up a nearby bridge. The alleged plotters discussed using a fake pizza delivery to kidnap Whitmer, leaving Whitmer on a boat in the middle of Lake Michigan, and even kidnapping Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, one of the tyrants who they believed were abusing their power in order to uh, to order statewide lockdowns in response to the coronavirus pandemic. <clears throat> then they go on to talk about Adam Fox, who was the guy designated by the government as the mastermind of the kidnapping plot. Now, again, this is reading from the Jacobin, which is the left-wing blog, and they're writing about Adam Fox. According to the FBI's affidavit, the Bureau made heavy use of informants and undercover agents in this case. At least four took part specifically two informants and two undercover agents on whose evidence gathering the criminal complaint was based. There was implied that some unspecific number of additional personnel were involved. The affidavit notes that an undercover agent told the ringleader it would cost $4,000 to procure explosives. Four of the accused planned to meet with another undercover agent posing as an explosives expert to pay for them and they were told to get some excess tactical gear the agent had that day, they were arrested. In court, Richard Trask, the agent who authored the affidavit, said he didn't know how much money the defendants had on them when they were put in handcuffs. Aside from the $275 held by Adam Fox, pegged by Trask as the ringleader. Then it goes on to talk talk about Fox, and I'm not going to read all this just to say he was homeless. His boss, uh, who owns uh, like like a vacuum store, let him live in the basement. He was living in squalor, and they are accusing him, of course, of being the ringleader of this plot to do all of this, to, you know, buy explosives and to, and to make this, you know, grand uh, kidnapping of, uh, of Gretchen Whitman, Whitmer. The Michigan plot did not start out as a kidnapping. According to the DOJ's own indictment, the plot started as a plan to just storm the Capitol building in Lansing, and the conspirators would do so by amping up at least 200 men. That was the plan. So it wasn't going to be anything beyond that. So the FBI acknowledges the use of both confidential informants and undercover employees over the course of several months leading up to this so-called thwarted plot. Specifically, the complaint acknowledges two confidential informants and two undercover employees. But now it looks like there were more involved than that. And we may have heard his voice on that that, uh, clip I played for you earlier. It's a deep undercover informant. Uh, So... um, so going on that percentage, at least the FBI infiltrators comprised at least 26% of the plotters in the Michigan plan. So it's the guy, I, I, I read it to you. I'm not going to go block that down again because it's too, uh, in one of the plot's climactic scheme scenes, in the main van dr- driving up to look at Governor Whitmer's vacation home, three out of the five people, 60% were federal agents and informants. So so we have a group of plotters that is heavily infiltrated by FBI informants and undercover agents who were allegedly planning to kidnap Michigan Governor Whitmer and storm the state capitol. 
We also know that it that many of the main figures indicted in this plot seem to be associated with a militia group called the Three Plus Percenters, one of the very same big three militia groups, that's in quotes, big three, militia groups primarily charged with orchestrating 116. All right, so then they go on uh, to recap, and I want to read their recap because this is very important. I've not made the last point as well as I need to, and this this will. Just months prior to the U.S. Capitol siege on January 6th, the FBI thwarted a similar plot involving a siege at the Michigan State Capitol whose plotters belonged to one of the three main militia groups associated with 1-6. The FBI was able to thwart this on the basis of an astonishing infiltration rate of said groups involving undercover operatives and informants who had been working in such capacity just in one tiny Michigan network for more than seven months. They were so well infiltrated that they already had three informants embedded in this random three percenter network before any plot was even hatched. Furthermore, just days after the plot was foiled, FBI Director Christopher Wray quietly promoted the FBI special agent in charge of the Michigan plot operation to a coveted D.C. field post where he now oversees the operation and investigation into January 6th. The special agent in charge is the one who establishes, extends, renews, and supervises all FBI undercover operations. So now we know his name, and now he's running January 6th, and what Revolver is uh, suggesting is that that was a trial, a run, uh, for going after, for doing whatever it was that they're alleging that it's possible that the FBI... look. They got involved in the Michigan plot before they were ever talking about, nobody was talking about kidnapping Gretchen Whitmer. They were talking about storming the Capitol. And so somehow that 26% involvement of FBI informants and FBI agents uh, made it a lot more elaborate, this whole idea of explosives uh, and of all the things that those guys who were so poor, they couldn't afford any of that. So it really is very concerning. It's, It's potentially... Very frightening, actually, to think if this has happened. And I, I watched a, quite a long video. Well, I watched part of it. I didn't get to see all of it, of uh, the FBI agent overseeing uh, the January 6th. Uh, and I was disturbed. I was really disturbed by his manner. There's something not right here. There, why, why so many resources on this one event? Why so many resources before the event without even preventing the event? Without any, you yourselves, when you called into my to the show a couple of days after January sixth, the theme was where were the police? We didn't see police, and when we did see police, it was like they were confused and they didn't know what to do. Why, if the FBI had infiltrated and knew this stuff, as they claim, uh, why why would why would they just let it go on and let their people actually? It looks like possibly be some of the leaders. It makes no sense, and that's the questions that are being asked. I know I'm spending a lot of time on that, but I think it's extremely important. Now, I want to close the show with one other thing that's totally different because I want this is also important. I talked to you uh, a little bit last week about uh, the number of kids, uh, young men especially in Israel, who were developing um, a, a, a lung condition, my, a heart condition, myocardial, my, myo, what is it, myos. I'll look at it in just a second. But a lot of kids in Israel were developing this after being forced to be vaccinated in Israel, and some of them were dying. 
And so as a result of that, Germany had stopped uh, requiring uh, young men and young women to be vaccinated, but that didn't stop our universities and colleges. I think over 100 are insisting that our kids get vaccinated before they go to school. Many of your kids have probably been vaccinated. Vaccinated. So now here's from Just the News an update on this. Heart problems in vaccinated students trigger medical legal scrutiny of campus COVID mandates. As the government reviews several hundred reports of heart inflammation in young people following COVID vaccination, high-profile medical and legal scholars are calling on colleges to scrap their COVID vaccine mandates, calling them unnecessary and potentially harmful. University of California Irvine medical ethicist Aaron Curiati and University of Notre Dame law professor Gerard Bradley went so far as to invoke the post-Nazi Nuremberg Code in urging universities to abandon their mandates. And that's in a Wall Street Journal op-ed that was printed just last week. Younger adults and children have extremely low risks of mortality from COVID, according to epidemiologist, just plural, Martin Kuldorf of Harvard Medical and Jay Batachera of Stanford Medical. And they wrote that in The Hill on Thursday. They're trying to stop this. Uh, Martin Kuldorf, uh, the guy from Harvard Medical, has been kicked off Twitter for talking about COVID. So this is what he wrote. Our COVID vaccine op-ed was just published by The Hill. Twitter does not allow vaccine scientists to freely discuss vaccines, but you can find it on my LinkedIn and Gab accounts. Okay, so that's how serious this is. And they're talking about, they're talking about the dangers to our kids. And then they talk about a girl at Northwestern University who developed heart problems after taking her second Moderna shot last week. Uh, and the Daily Northwestern was told that 19-year-old Simone Scott died of pneumonia-related issues following an emergency heart transplant. But her parents told journalist Alex Berenson they believe the vaccine played a role and was a coincidence that is too big to ignore. Uh, it's a myocarditis. That was the name of the disease I'm trying to... That's what she suffered. Myocarditis. And she died... This is just one kid, more than 500, boy, did I get that wrong, more than 500 colleges are requiring COVID vaccinations for the students. I'm telling you, this is worth fighting over, is it not? And uh, some of you are going to have to reconsider if you haven't already uh, the, the, the safety, the even physical safety of your children are going to these colleges and universities right now. Their mental well-being as well as their physical well-being. This is an article in Just the News. We'll put it on our Facebook page as well. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.